NITV Radio, on mobile, online and on radio. We acknowledge the traditional owners of the land NITV Radio broadcasts from, the Wurundjeri Woiwurrung people of the Kulin Nation and their elders past and present. We also acknowledge all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander tribes and clans we broadcast to, from the mountains to the plains, from the desert to the sea, from fresh water to salt water. Yama, and welcome to Night TV Radio. Coming up in your program this Monday, July 24, have a conversation with the choreographer Thomas Kelly talking about silence. This is his new bold work that brings to the forefront conversations about treaty and also highlights other unresolved topics that are usually swept under the carpet. Silence is currently touring the country in the sidelines of the Voice referendum campaign. Also on NITV Radio today, we continue our conversation with Banjalang woman and historian Shona Bostock talking about her new book, Reaching Through Time. As you'll hear, while sifting painstakingly through private and public records, Shona Bostock uncovered startling details about her family. In the process, she also discovered untold truths about the cruelty of the Aborigines Protection Board and administrative hurdles designed to make it hard for First Nations people to learn about their family histories in official archives. Also on NITV Radio today, the first, play- the first female players to represent Australia and New Zealand in international football have taken to the pitch for a friendly match to mark the Women's World Cup. All these stories and more coming to you after the latest news on NITV Radio, coming to you from Nam on the Cooling Nation this Monday afternoon. Bertrand Tungandami, I am Bertrand Tungandami. Australia Day 1972 saw the first Aboriginal embassy erected outside Parliament. The native title legislation must be amended. And they've walked this land so many times before anybody came. I am sorry. A prominent indigenous elder issues a call to arms for supporters of the voice amid negative polls. The federal government's digital literacy initiative said to be life-changing for First Nations people closing the gap in the digital divide. And a new government proposal will ensure casual workers working regular hours will be offered a permanent role. Indigenous elder Daniel Pearson has issued a call to arms for supporters of The Voice, saying more work needs to be done as the referendum's success continues to be cast into doubt. Support for constitutionally enshrining an Indigenous advisory body has been tracking downwards according to numerous polls. Mr. Pearson has told Sky News, yes, supporters have to work for success in the vote because a no response would be devastating for reconciliation and leave Australia in the darkness. He says this referendum is an opportunity to finally make progress. No is the default position in Australia. We've been no for 250 years. Mm. In a 1788, 26 January, no. The switch was on no. 
1901, when we formed the Federation, the switch was on no. Every time we've come to this issue, we've been on the default setting of no. We finally have a chance with this referendum to flick the switch to yes. The federal government says its new initiative to improve digital literacy in Indigenous communities could be life-changing for First Nations people. The National Indigenous Australians Agency has led development of the plan alongside Indigenous organisations and businesses, industry and Commonwealth and state government agencies. Its unveiling follows an Australian Digital Inclusion Index finding that there is a significant digital gap between Indigenous and non-Indigenous Australians. Communications Minister Michelle Rowland says digital inclusion has historically been overlooked as an area that needs attention. The gap between those who are digitally included and those who are excluded continues to be more pronounced for First Nations communities and that is exacerbated by remoteness. The gap overall is 7.5. We need to close that gap. The way we are going to do that is by having a strategy like this that has measurable plans and that is capable of being achieved. A radon monitor has been installed at Morujuga in far northern Western Australia to track the impact of man-made emissions on the region's world-famous 50,000-year-old rock art. There are now fears human intervention and pollution is accelerating natural weathering at the location, which is recognised as a unique ecological and archaeological area by the WA government and was also nominated as the next Australian UNESCO World Heritage Site last February. Acting CEO of the Morijuga Aboriginal Corporation, Travis McNaught, says they have formed the Morijuga Rock Art Monitoring Program to deliver a scientifically rigorous approach to monitoring, analysing and managing the art. Workplace Relations Minister Tony Park says a new proposal from the government will ensure casual workers working regular hours will be able to transition into a permanent role if they want to. The government is moving ahead with further employment reform that will force employers to offer approximately 850,000 casual workers a permanent job. Workers do not have to take up the offer and can remain casual employee to continue receiving casual loading instead of entitlements such as sick pay and holiday leave. Work Relations Minister Tony Burke says it will be moving towards a more political definition of casual work. It'll create a right where those casuals who are getting permanent hours can go to the employer and can say, these hours are permanent, I would like to be able to convert. And secondly, we will go to a proper definition of casual to what it was before the coalition government legislated a couple of years ago. And that's a definition that was a practical definition that looked at whether or not you were in fact working in a cash as a casual or whether in fact you were working permanent hours a surprise new poll shows the popularity of the west australian labor government has plummeted the arting research poll of 1000 voters shows a resurgence of support for the liberal party which now has a 54 percent to 46 percent two-party preferred lead over labor The last poll conducted in May after leader Mark McGowan stepped down had Labour ahead at 61% to 39%. 
after the 2021 state election in the Liberal and Nationals parties banded together to form opposition with the Liberals as the, the Liberals as the junior partner. The Liberals now hold two parliamentary seats in the Legislative Assembly while the Nationals hold four. A new report shows more households are in severe housing stress than at any other time in Australia's history, while the need for social housing is at a record high. The report by National Housing Campaign, Everybody's Home, used data from a survey of 750 Australians to estimate that two-thirds of Australians are currently experiencing housing stress. The campaign finds the increase in housing stress, defined as spending more than 30% of one's income on housing, is pushing Australians to their financial limits. Renters appear to be hit hardest, with more than four in five experiencing rental stress. Everybody's home spokesperson, May May Azizi, says the financial burden of housing could mean that people are missing out on other essentials. What that means when people are spending so much of their incomes on rent is that they've got absolutely nothing left to pay the bills, they might not have anything left to put food on the table, they might be skipping medical appointments, they've got nothing left for emergencies and they can't uh, save for the future. Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky says the latest Russian attack on the port city of Odessa used 19 types of missiles to cause maximum destruction. Ukraine's leader says the attack yesterday killed at least one person and injured 20 others, including four children. Almost 50 buildings were damaged, including 25 architectural monuments, the Greek consulate and a famed cathedral. Mr. Zelensky says one of the locations damaged is a UNESCO-protected heritage site. In total, almost 50 buildings were damaged in Odessa last night alone, 25 of which were architectural monuments. The historic center, a World Heritage Site that UNESCO has taken under its protection. The building of the Greek consulate was also damaged, and this is the second consular office in Odessa to be hit by Russian terror. Only three days ago, another attack damaged the building of the Chinese consulate. Russia has bombarded Odessa and other Ukrainian food export facilities nearly daily over the past week, wreaking havoc on residential areas and destroying tens of thousands of kilograms of exportable grain. New Zealand Justice Minister Kiritapu Alan has resigned her portfolio after being charged with careless driving and refusing to accompany a police officer after a drunken car crash. The incident is prompting the 39-year-old Labour MP to reconsider her political career, coming after a spell of publicly documented poor mental health. On Sunday night, Ms. Allen was held into police custody for around two hours after reportedly crashing into a parked car in Wellington. Prime Minister Chris Hipkins says he felt sympathy for her poor mental health but believed Ms. Allen was no longer fit to hold office. While her actions are inexcusable, I was given information that she was experiencing extreme emotional distress at the time of the incident. My initial concerns last night were for her immediate safety and well-being. I spoke to Kitty the first thing this morning, just before 7am. I advised her that I did not believe that she was in a fit state to hold a ministerial warrant. She expressed remorse and had already uh, sent me a message just before that, advised, um, indicating that she intended to resign. 
and to sport in cricket Australia retains the Ashes after the fourth test was drawn this morning with no play possible on day five due to rain leaving England trailing 2-1 in the series with one match to play. Wet weather broke the hearts of England who needed to take five more wickets to level the series at 2-2 and ensure the final test next week was a decider. The result meant England cannot win the series and therefore Australia as holders would retain the ashes. Australia captain Pat Cummins says it's a strange feeling to retain after a non-ideal performance but the team is determined to win the ashes outright with a victory next week. Yeah, it's a bit of a strange one. I think, you know, as a group, proud that we've retained the Ashes, but it's, you know, off the back of not our greatest week. Um, so we know we've got a fair bit of work to do for next week, a few improvements to make. And yeah, in some regards, whatever happened today wouldn't really change how we look at next week. You know, we want to win it. So we make sure that, you know, we, we um, yeah, win it outright. And having a look at the weather around the country, Brome, sunny 26, Perth, sunny 21, Adelaide, cloudy 15, Melbourne, also cloudy and 15, Hobart, partly cloudy 16, Albury, Wodonga, sunny 13, Canberra, sunny as well, 15 degrees, Wollongong, a shower or two, 18, Sydney, showers easing, 18, Newcastle, showers, 19, Brisbane, shower or two, 21, Townsville, sunny 22, Cairns, partly cloudy, 25, Alice Springs, mostly sunny, 16, Darwin, sunny, 28, and the Torres Strait Islands, cloudy day and the top of 27 degrees. And that is NITV Radio News. NITV Radio, Monday, Wednesday, Friday at 1pm or anytime online. I'm Bertrand Tugandame and you're listening to NITV Radio coming to you from NAM on the Cooling Nation this Monday afternoon. Still to come, we continue our conversation with Banjalang Woman and historian Shana Bostock talking about her new book, Reaching Through Time. Sifting painstakingly through private and public records, Shona Bostock uncovered startling details about her family in the new book. And in the process, she also discovered untold truths about the cruelty of the Aborigines Protection Board and also administrative hurdles designed to make it hard for First Nations people to learn about their family histories in official archives. Also on NITV Radio today... The first female players to represent Australia and New Zealand in international football have taken to the pitch for a friendly match to mark the Women's World Cup. The Australian side included the only indigenous female player at the time, Auntie Tarita, who, as you'll hear, is delighted about the positive changes made over the years in terms of First Nations participation in the world game. But first, a conversation about silence, a new play that explores the notion of treaty in response to Australia's relationship with its First Nations peoples and what a treaty could bring to First Nations Australians. Now it's time to talk about silence, described as a new politically and unapologetically raw dance work. And to talk about silence, I'm joined by uh, Thomas E.S. Kelly, choreographer of the new dance work. Welcome to NITV Radio, Thomas. 
Awesome. Thanks for having me. When I was preparing for this conversation and I looked at uh, the title, Silence, then saw the trailer, uh, I was shocked. It's very enigmatic. It's nothing about silence. <laughs> it's very, um, we like to joke around that silence is not silent. Yeah, it's, it's not silent at all. And actually, funnily enough, even if you think that there's a moment of silence in the show, we actually have an underlying sound, so there isn't one moment of silence in the show silence. And uh, you've got so many messages that are uh, many layers of significant, I mean, of uh, meaning that are also carried out in uh, this artwork. Uh, you bring in conversations uh, around uh, celebrating First Nations triumphs, uh, commentary on nationhood, and so on. Most importantly, you bring forward conversations about uh, treaty and other political matters. That's the main message that we're, we're doing with silence, is continuing the conversation uh, of the treaty, of the treaty conversations that, are, that have been happening since the first ship arrived 253 years ago. And so with silence, because every time we get spoken to as First Nations people about what it is we want and and, you know, how do we want to build our relationship between the Commonwealth and First Nations people? The, the treaty is always there. It's always, it's always being presented and, and being, um, you know, asked to have that conversation about and to build that relationship. So when they keep silencing it and pushing it off the table, that's where this has come from, is that silence is breaking their silence. Because, I mean, we, we know that um, there's a power in a silence and, when you when you use it in this regards of just ignoring us and acting like you don't hear anything, that's that there's problems in that. So that kind of that's what we're doing with the show is continuing that conversation or, or that that push that us as First Nations people have been doing. So bringing to the forefront uh, something that has been uh, pushed under the carpet. And uh, this comes at a time when uh, the national conversation is all around uh, voice to parliament and then you bring in this other conversation that's been around even longer, I believe. It's been very interesting. Um, this year. So this year we kicked off a national tour for the work, which is very exciting. It's the, the, the biggest tour for us with Carol Projects, with our, with our work and for myself in my shows. And when we made the show in, in 2020 and we were, well, we were making it in 2018 and it premiered in 2020 and, you know, we were a lot more focused on just the treaty and, and the conversations. There was a little bit of kind of trying to talk about us responding to the COP250 um, in 2020. But now, yeah, as you said, like there's new conversation around the voice and the referendum and kind of where do we sit in that? And, and, and as we all know, like the treaty and the voice are, two separate things they're both two different points on the Uluru statement from the heart but that the idea of that statement is everything going together hand in hand and that a voice should should be helping us to get to the next step of a treaty and so there definitely is this relationship together of the two which has been very interesting for me and my team of us figuring out kind of what that all is and and how we make sure that our message which is not anything to do with the voice but it's not a against or for, but it's still the same conversation, if that makes sense. Because yes, we're really yeah. talking for the treaty. Yeah. And then the voice is obviously coming up. So wanting to make sure that we're giving the right conversation from our end or the information, because I'm not, I'm not telling anybody what to think. I don't want anybody to think that I'm telling them. I, I'm just wanting with this work to present information on the table. And in this case, like I said, majority around 
a treaty, presenting the information of what a treaty could be and how the relationship could exist and what we are asking for when we ask for a treaty. And so that when people go away, that it provides topic points, it provides the information so people can have a conversation about what a treaty could be. And from my experience and the research I've done, from how much better we could be as a nation, both Indigenous and non-Indigenous, could be with a treaty in place. It said that uh, in a silence, it's not just about protest, you also celebrate First Nations triumphs. Absolutely. I mean, we are talking about a community that has been underrepresented and misrepresented and, you know, kind of constantly pushed down in many different areas. And what I've been working for, I know, is because of those who've come before me. So we have these moments of representing who we are, that we are still here and we are very powerful people and we are very, like, you know, powerful, strong mob. When you see us, it it, it empowers the next generation. With this show, for me, right, there's seven of us on stage. There's seven First Nations people on stage. So when you come and see the show, you're seeing seven blackfellas who are very proud of who they are and where they're from and and none of us share tribal groups so we're actually connecting to a lot of different places from all the way up in the Torres Strait coming all the way down the east coast across to South Australia mob going over to NT we've um, you know it's very important that we acknowledge you know what we do have is because of those who've come before us and we are very aware that Australia it's not we want to celebrate all things not just the the moments where we do something so for example we have a section where we we pay homage to Nikki Winmar and to Kathy Freeman and to the the first cricket team to tour internationally which was an all aboriginal team these people have pushed the boundaries and 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 explore like we're celebrating that you know celebrating the different um, decisions that have led to where we've got to because this is a you know we've We've been fighting and everything that we get has been with a fight and with a push and kind of and, and breaking barriers that that didn't support us as who we are inside this country. Yeah. Usually, uh, well, someone would have expected it to be a little bit more, uh, how do you call it, subdued and so on. But you chose something very powerful, very upbeat, uh, very uh, in your face. There's definitely, it is a very powerful work. I mean, we, we have a, from the very beginning, before I even made one bit of movement, I knew I wanted a full drum kit on stage. And from that moment, that drum kit has really defined how we were going to be in the space. You know, when we say silence, but then we've got a full drum kit with Tindu Pedro Lori, who's an incredible drummer and musician, um, just we are there. We're like, we're being present. We're not going to be, we're not going to be, oh, please look at us. We're like, here we are. We're standing here. We have a story to tell. We're all going to listen. And sure, I definitely love feeding in because it's dance theater. So there is moments of text. I love playing with humor and making people laugh and getting people on. So there is moments where we hit hard. And then there is moments where we're like, all right, now we've got that out of the way. Let's talk about this one now. And then we will hit hard again. And then there's humor. And it's kind of, I'm pretty, I'm, personally, I'm pretty proud of this work. It's, it's got a, there's this flow that moves really nice. The dancers are all incredible, or the performers, they're, they're, they're so strong and sharp. And we guide everyone through a journey that hits hard, but also 
make sure that we are all feeling safe together. And when I'm saying that, I'm saying more so for my First Nations community that come and see the work because there is some issues in here that can be um, traumatic, but I don't want us as First Nations people to be hurting so the non-Indigenous audience members can understand what's going on. I'm not yeah. about hurting us to get the point across. So there is that humour and that kind of togetherness as we are hitting hard at the same time. Yeah, and uh, there's also uh, strobe lights, water haze and more. It's a really, really spectacular performance. Oh, absolutely. I mean, some, some of the reviews have, have referenced it akin to a rock show. Um, we, we come out and we, we, we go for it. There is, um, at the end of the show, we're all pretty... We're all pretty exhausted. We've left it all out there on the stage with the audience, the energy. Um, I mean, I, I work a lot in this particular show in, in general. In, in general, I work with it, but in this show, I work with the cuts. Like in traditional dance, when we're dancing, we all hit a cut. I always grew up with um, that that is the strongest part of cultural dance yeah. because in the nothingness is where you see everyone, the, both the physical and the ancestral. And so as the show goes on and we start hitting those cuts, that when we get to the end, you feel what well, we feel, and I believe the audience is, is felt, and they see everybody in that space, not just the seven performers, but all the ancestors that we're all bringing in there, is there riding with us in this story. Yeah. Now, it's premiering on uh, Friday the 28th uh, in Bathurst, and we'll play your play actually over that weekend. Uh, any uh, dates for the rest of the country? Because this is something... Uh, I can see going all around the country and uh, bringing large crowds. We're in our third leg of the tour. Yeah. So this is our final leg for the for the known future of Silence and Coral Projects. So we open to the leg tomorrow night, actually, in, um, in Tamworth. So we're in Tamworth right now, uh, remounting the work. So we, we do Tamworth tomorrow, and then on the 25th next week, we do Wagga Wagga. And then on the, we're there in Bathurst on the, the 28th. Then we head over to Wollongong from the 9th of August. And then we head up to Darwin for Darwin Festival on the 17th of August. And anywhere else uh, people can go to find your work, to see and explore and experience your work? If you go to Carl Projects, so K-A-R-U-L projects.com, that's our website. And then we have a link that says upcoming. If you click on that, you'll see... All of our shows, we, um, we've actually got quite a few towards the back end of the year, so not just Silence, but of a couple of our other ones. So you can see all of those works there on, the, on that link. Now, before I let you go, any closing thoughts? I would just like to preface that this is a pretty powerful story it's, it's in, in conversation. It's, it's more of a conversation, but I really love, especially in the world that we're living in right now where we've got the voice coming up and the conversation of treaty, something that we have the opportunity to do is we're artists and I love to think that as artists we get to create worlds, a world where we get to showcase kind of what things are like or have been like or could be like and, and that's what we're doing here. So we're not politicians on stage talking politician talk. We're using dance and theatre and story and music, just like our mob have been doing for tens of thousands of years to, to continue this conversation and to tell this story. And, and we're really proud of it. And um, it might be tickets on myself, but I really don't believe that people will regret coming to see the show. No, I read all the reviews and saw the trailer. I concur with you. It's a really, really powerful and a beautiful performance. Now, 
Thomas Kelly, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us on NITV Radio today about your theatre dance work, Silence. Now, Bogulbe, thank you very much. Now, uh, this story about uh, silence is already published actually on our website, sbs.com.au slash NITV radio. So if you missed it or want to listen to it again, to, to, to have a listen again, you can just turn in, check our website, sbs.com.au slash NITV radio. Now it's time to step aside for another break. And when we come back, we have a conversation with a historian, Shona Bostock, about her latest book. Stay tuned. NITV Radio, share our stories on Facebook. Now, in her new book, Reaching uh, Through Time, historian and author Banjarang woman Shona Bostock embarked on a journey to find her family histories. Sifting painstakingly through private and public records, she uncovered startling details about her family, including links to, stra- to slave traders, a great indigenous cricketer who bowled out Don Bradman, and many other illustrious and less fortunate ancestors. Shona Boston also discovered untold truths about the cruelty of the Aborigines Protection Board and other administrative bodies. In this second part of our conversation, Shona Bostock starts by shedding light on obstacles in state archives purposely designed to make research on Aboriginal histories difficult. I saved the, the part about the archives for last because I really wanted to, it to resonate with people. Now, I got... What had happened was people don't know that when Professor Peter Reed revealed the truth about the stolen generation in 1981, they don't know that the New South Wales government uh, formulated, established uh, the Ministry of Aboriginal Affairs and they went to the State Record Archive. Peter Reed was my supervisor of my PhD and he was always telling me I was the last person to see all those records, and I, I didn't quite understand what he meant when I first started my PhD, but boy, do I understand now. What happened was the New South Wales government, after Peter Reed revealed to the nation the truth about the stolen generation, the New South Wales government went to the uh, Western Sydney State Records Archive and removed all the records relating to the Aborigines Protection Board and locked them away in the Ministry of Aboriginal Affairs. And the only way that you can get access to those records is if you are a direct descendant. And it just so happens that I have two Aboriginal grandparents, um, four Aboriginal grandparents, and I traced my four grandparents' family lines back to settlement. And then I um, wrote about, I researched their history from colonisation to the present. So the book is really, really epic, but it reveals so much. And one of the the things that I think that people need to understand is that there's this, in the chronology of history, of Australian history, we go along and we see everything that happened um, and then there's this dark section, a veiled section, and it's deliberately veiled, I think. I personally think it is. And they've locked away those archives and you can only get... Um, access if you're a descendant but because I was a descendant of so many ancestors I got many files and so I was able to bring these files out into the open and if I wasn't related to all the people that I am related to then these records would never have seen a lot of day. Yeah, no, it's a masterclass of how to use uh, public records and uh, other private records, even uh, records uh, in um uh, 
historical society organizations because you really went through all possible avenues to find out about uh, your ancestors it was a uh, when reading the book actually i can see even your jubilation when you come across information you're yearning to find for many many hours and then you come across it really 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 a master class of how to conduct uh, research and Besides the sad story, you also uncovered some positive stories, including a family member who was a great cricketer, who even, uh, yeah, was challenging uh, the great brother. <laughs> <laughs> my um, my great grandfather Sam Anderson was a fantastic. He was a, he was a freakishly good um, county cricketer over New South Wales, and he um, and my mother and her sisters always said, "Oh, our grand great." Our grandfather got um, Donald Bradman out for a duck. But technically, I have to put in a, a cricketing sort of um, a note here that a wicket is uh, taken, uh, is attributed to the bowler, not the catcher. So we have to say, we have to correct the record and say, my great-grandfather got Don Brad, caught Don Bradman out for a duck. He was the wicket keeper. But yeah, that's a, that's a, a lovely part of history that, that came out about my family. But I joke in the book, <laughs> the book isn't sadness and gloom and doom. There's some good stories in there too. I really felt that it was important to create balance. You know, I don't want people reading this book or, or thinking about this book and, oh, it's just another book about the oppression of Aborigines and it's all misery, gloom and doom, because it's not. I create balance um, where, you know, there were non-Indigenous people who supported Aboriginal people in history and who who um, went above and beyond their, their call of duty to help Aboriginal people. So it's not a, 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 a miserable book about the sad history. And there are many funny stories you know, uh, uh, um, along the way. And one of them is that my great-grandfather got uh, Donald Bradman out for a duck, so caught him out for a duck. It wasn't his wicket, but he caught him. So, yeah, yeah. so I, um, I always thought that that was a myth in family history oral history, I always thought it was a myth and I always wondered if my aunties and mum were just, you know, like, can you prove it? And I actually did prove it. I went to the old newspapers <clears throat> and saw the record and uh, actually got my hands on a letter written by Donald Bradman. And uh, so, yeah, uh, helping, telling a researcher that he didn't remember um, the time that it happened. Um, but And that's in the book as well. So, yeah, because... Uh, yeah. Yeah, and that's uh, thanks also to some records that people don't uh, look at uh, all the time. The local papers uh, they published uh, the the you know the feet of your great ancestor. Now I won't take much of your time, so before I let you go, any closing words, any closing thoughts? I think that uh, yes, I, I um, at the beginning of the book I say to the I say why don't you know to one of my university friends who was sitting beside me um, when I was first doing my teaching degree and she um, was learning about stolen generation and learning about missions and reserves with, you know, the whole cohort. And she whacked me on the arm and said, did you know this? And I said, uh, yes, why don't you? And so I tell the reader why you don't know about Aboriginal history and why you don't know about the Aborigines Protection Board and then um, I explain that history didn't begin to be revealed until 1981 by Henry Reynolds' um, work and Peter Reed's work, both professors now. 
And then it started to emerge with um, my Uncle Jerry and Alec Morgan's film, Lousy Little Sixpence. That you can watch that on YouTube. It's in four parts and it only goes for a little over an hour. But it was a groundbreaking documentary about the treatment of Aboriginal uh, people and the removal of children. Um, we, he made that film, Uncle Jerry and Alec Morgan made that film when Peter Reed hadn't released the phrase Stolen Generation. So they were just revealing the story um, um, in that groundbreaking film. So that's why people of my age, I'm 59 now, or, or I've was finishing school in 1981 so there's so many people my generation or older who don't know about Aboriginal history but I think that also the school system and the teaching system kind of cherry picks important um, 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 landmark moments like Mabo and the Stolen Generation and and other things of um, a- about Aboriginal history to the detriment of the truth because you know not many people know about the managed reserve system and this book reveals it all and uh and so i want to lift the veil of that um you know and of that shadow over the period of the aborigines protection board and to do that we need to get historians into the archive we can still have anonymity um, of people's uh, family names but we need to get historians into that archive to you know rip open the wound and clean it out properly. And that's how I see the greatest healing of Aboriginal people, Aboriginal uh, people's history to take place, is, is to get in there, open up those archives and stop hiding it away, just tell the truth. Yeah, just uh, an exercise in uh, family history and truth-telling. Quite a groundbreaking uh, reading and really riveting. Uh, it's one of those books that I would say they're unputdownable if the word can be used. Shona Bostock, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us on NITV Radio today. Oh, it's wonderful to talk to you too, Bertram, and thank you for having me. Join the conversation on radio, online and mobile. You're with NITV Radio. Welcome back. You're listening to NITV Radio with uh, me, Bertrand Tungandami, your host today, coming to you from Nam on the Kulin Nation this Monday afternoon. Now, it's a rematch almost 50 years in the making. The first female players to represent Australia and New Zealand in international football have taken to the pitch for a friendly match to mark the Women's World Cup. Auntie Tarita, the sole indigenous player on Australia's 1975 team, says she's happy to see there has been improvements not only in financial investment in the sport, but also in representation. As SBS's Adriana Weinstock reports, the players have lost some speed and agility compared to past performances, but they made up for it with their passion and pride. My Achilles is going. No, we're warming up here, actually. Yes. Limbering up to relieve past glories, the trailblazing teams from Australia and New Zealand who contested the inaugural Women's Asian Cup in Hong Kong are out for retirement. With the stunning view of Sydney Harbour Bridge behind them, the former players have come back on the field for a rematch. But this time, it's a game of walking football. There is no contact apart from them. No running. 
No balls above head high, no heading of ball. Just a great spirited game and a lot of fun. Five decades on, it seems like old habits die hard. And these women are no stranger to hard knocks. Kathy Hall is from New Zealand's 1975 national team. Bit physical? Uh, yeah, they got a bit rough. You saw me get chopped down at the end or trip over the ball. <laughs> Typical cheating Aussies. <laughs> yeah. No, it was good fun. Yeah. The landscape of women's soccer has changed dramatically since these women played professionally. In 1975, investment in the sport was near zero. Instead, they had to find their own way to play internationally. Australia's captain in the 1975 national team, Pat O'Connor, says they did whatever they could to pay for the trip to Hong Kong. Walkathons, soccerthons, you name it, we did it. We cleaned cars, we sold t-shirts at the men's games, they allowed us to do that. Every, anything we could think of to raise the money, and we made it. Pat O'Connor says playing in their tournament is a feeling she will never forget. In those days, it wasn't so popular. So to get this opportunity to go to, to play in the first Asian Cup, you know, this was a dream for us. So, and then being allowed to wear the actual national uniform, the same as the Socceroos wore in that time, and to walk out in the field in these colours... You'd have to experience it to know how it feels. It has been a long road for women in soccer since then. And a lot has changed in this year's Women's World Cup. Antti Tarita, the sole indigenous player on Australia's 1975 team, says she's happy to see there has been improvement, not only in financial investment in the sport, but also in representation. You know, no, there was no recognition until there was us. There was no recognition. And, and uh, the, I look, and when I say us, I'm the only Aboriginal there, eh? And we got Latvian, South African, Dutch, English. Oh, we got them all. And that's who we are, Australia now. Despite the pioneering performances in the green and gold... This first Australian's women football team has had to fight for almost five decades to get formal recognition. The players are all from New South Wales, but were given permission from the governing body to wear the national coat of arms. Acknowledgement from Football Australia came in May, but they are still not considered fully-fledged Matildas. Today, though, there is no denying their role in sporting history. The result was a gallows draw. But 1975 players Trudy Fisher and Carol Knox say it's about more than winning. It's all about camaraderie yep. and friendship. Friendship yep. all the 48 years. Yep. Yep. We all so stick that's, together. That's what it's all about, is yes. friendship. Adriana Weinstock, SBS News. Visit sbs.com.au slash NITV radio. And uh, that's all uh, we have on NITV Radio today. We'll be back on Wednesday with uh, more stories and news from uh, right across the country. I'm Bertrand Tungendame. Bertrand Tungendame there. Thanking you for your company this Monday afternoon. Till next time, bye for now. Yalu.